great the chasm that lay between us how high the mountain i could not climb in desperation i turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night then through the darkness your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul the work is finished the end is written jesus christ Then came the morning that sealed the promise. 
Let's just dive into our text this morning, beginning in Matthew chapter 13. Uh, nope, 7, 13. It's chapter Matthew 7, verse 13. We're off to a good start. Um, uh, this will conclude our Sermon on the Mount series. I'm going to read through this and we'll pray. This is a word of the Lord. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day, many will come and say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone who then who hears the words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds beat and uh, blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears the words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for the silence that we can find in sitting before you, Lord, asking you that we, you would give us um, uh, willing hearts to receive uh, what's going to be a very challenging word, to say the least, this morning. Lord, you are our God, your resurrection, which occurred on the first day of the week, on Sunday morning. Every week we gather, your resurrection summons us to meet together and to look to you as, as we just sung, our only living hope. And so, Lord, as we do so, Holy Spirit, we know you are among us, you are with us now. We invite you to soften, soften our hearts, Lord that you would give us ears that are unclogged and, and open to be able to hear your word and hearts that are primed and ready to receive your word. We pray against any spirit of um, uh, uh, you know, pushback and, and rejection of Jesus' words and any work that the enemy may be whispering in our ears this morning. Lord, we want to 
um, not just be obedient people, Lord, uh, much more than that. We want to be your, your, your slaves, your servant. Lord, we want to belong to you. You as our master. And Lord, you told us that when we find that place where you are our master is where true freedom comes. So Lord, I pray that this sermon would be just one step towards true freedom in you this morning. One more step for this church, Lord. We pray for the other churches in our city meeting this very moment. We thank you for them. We thank you for their ministry. We thank you for what they're doing. Lord, we pray for their flourishing in this COVID season. It's been hard on so many. And Lord, we pray that for the words that are being preached there as well, that the gospel will go forth, that it would be, uh, your word would accomplish its will for those congregations, that they would grow, Lord, that we even grow faster than us, Lord, that we would see the churches around us, including our church, Lord, just all flourishing, that the gospel may shine in the city of Wilmington and beyond. So, Lord, we thank you for those Christians in those churches, Lord. So be with us this morning. We pray in your wonderful, holy, good, and majestic name. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to give a bit of a Surgeon General's, General's warning, if I can, this morning. Uh, this is, if you were to look in the Bible and say, what are some of the most difficult verses in the entirety of the Bible? Like, give me top three. We're looking at a start contender for number one here. Um, this is tough. These are hard words. Uh, not every sermon is rosy and encouraging. The, the temptation, as you know, the preacher this morning, is to try to soften Jesus' words. I don't want to do that, okay? I want Jesus' words to be his words, right? There, Jesus has three offices that he fulfilled in his life. The office of prophet, of priest, and of our king. He is our king. He is our high priest who intercedes on our behalf. But he is the prophet like Moses, but better than Moses. That Deuteronomy chapter 19 prophesied and pointed towards he is, right now, he, he's putting on that prophet jacket, all right? Just like the Old Testament prophets of old, he's saying, all right, guys, I, I want to speak some hard and difficult words, and I need you to listen up here. I need your ears to be open and hear these hard words. And so, church, if I can, can gently encourage you this morning, um, I, I don't want to make apologies for Jesus' words. These are difficult words, but we're going to work through them the best that we can. A roadmap for this morning is we're going to summarize this narrow gate of discipleship that so far the entire Sermon on the Mount has uh, really defined. And we're going to heed the warnings of the wide and easy path that we are warned in taking. And then we'll be warned of false prophets, how to know that they are false with the wide and easy paths that they preach and the, the lack of fruit in their own lives that will be made evident and be challenged with the very difficult question that Jesus is challenging, are you a false prophet? Am I a false prophet whose head and heart are at a severe disconnect and hypocrisy abounds in my life? Thirdly, we will look at how a life full of confession of Jesus and even spirit-filled ministry, like powerful Jesus ministry can happen and still be no sign that we truly know him. 
which is a difficult thing to wrestle with, but we have to this morning. We will end with a parable and encouragement that these are, that these, uh, uh, all these warnings really are opening up an opportunity to respond. These are not warnings that are like, sorry, there's no future for you if this is true of you, sorry. No, he's given us a warning to say, and now's the time to respond to this. He, he has not returned yet, says Peter, for this window of opportunity of response to remain, that we hear these warnings and we, and we respond. The Spirit is going to be pushing us to say, you need to, to, to build on the rock that is Christ, and now is the day of salvation. So this is the roadmap of our sermon. Let's dive in with verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Contrary to popular use of these verses, this passage in its proper context is not about people who are Christians, the narrow door, and those who are not, the wide door. And it is actually, maybe indirectly it is, but not directly about the exclusivity of Jesus and the salvation is only found in him while the rest of the world is separate from him. Certainly, that's indirectly found here. That's the truth that we hold to as Orthodox theology, right? That historically the church has preached and we continue to preach that. But this, this text is actually referring to, you remember, this is his disciples he is talking to. These are the crowd that he just emptied out of the, you know, hospital, if you will, at the very beginning, chapters ago. People he healed from all regions around Jerusalem and, and, uh, and uh, Judea and the surrounding nations that he brought healing to, restoration to. He gathered them together. They were following him, saying, Jesus, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. He goes, great, let me tell you about life as a follower of me. He is speaking to his disciples in this passage. This narrow door and wide path are a warning to his followers. And this is the theme of our sermon today. That there will be many who claim to follow, that's an important little nuance there, who claim to follow Jesus and are actually walking on the wide path of destruction unknowingly. Few, says Jesus, will find the narrow door of discipleship and obedience in their Christian life. We will expound upon this thought uh, throughout, but I'm going to just give you a little hint here. There's other verses where Jesus says, many will come to recline at the table with me and our father Abraham. Uh, uh, Re Revelation sees multitudes who did respond from all nations, in, in their, even in their own tongues in heaven, worshiping him. So we know that many people did respond, but Jesus is still speaking truth. But as a prophet of old, he is saying, look, it's, it might just be fewer than you imagine. Yeah, many did respond, but you know, it, it might be a smaller number than you would presently think. And that's his challenge this morning. Jesus has defined what it means to walk through the narrow door of discipleship throughout this sermon. So I, I want to remind you of some of the things that he has talked about so far in this Sermon on the Mount. He, he started off saying, be, be light to the world. Be people who are, who are joyful and content in me beyond all circumstances. Uh, realize that things like anger and lust and adultery, that they, those things begin in the heart. And when you commit it in your heart, it's almost just the same as committing it externally with your physical 
actions. We were told to not retaliate against those who sinned against us, to, but to entrust that to God and as for us, to give that thief our extra jacket if he steals one of ours. He told us to love our enemies, even those who were against us and persecute us. He told us to give to the needy and to do it in secret without Instagramming or Facebooking your good deed or tweeting about whatever you did to show the world. He taught us how to fast in secret and to pray in secret with no one even watching, lest you be known for your extravagant prayers, right? To lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven and not to be anxious about our material life here on this world since if he provides for the flowers, surely he'll provide for his children. To be gracious towards one another, not in judgment, but to treat others just how God has treated us as our daddy in heaven with grace and with generosity to treat others as we would like to be treated. These things, admittingly also, plus much more than the New Testament, right, um, uh, is a, that's the narrow door of discipleship. And I would say that simultaneously, this discipleship we're referring to, that we are called to live in Christ, is a path that is as accessible as can be for my seven or eight-year-old kid, right, one that has genuine faith, they can do these things. But it's also some of the most difficult and hardest lifelong journeys that we will ever, it is the most difficult in life, uh, most difficult lifelong journey we will ever experience. So it is accessible, yet so difficult, all at the same time. I'm going to read a passage from Dietrich Bonhoeffer's uh, devotional classic, The Cost of Discipleship. If you don't have a copy, you haven't read it, standing offer. I'll buy one for you, so just come talk to me. Coming from a man who, uh, living in Nazi Germany, um, who had the chance to escape to America, a nice cushy, you know, uh, theologian professor job at a seminary, uh, to escape the horrors of suffering for his own people, he chose to go back. And eventually he died in a concentration camp, somewhat controversially. But he died there, He wrestled with these things deeply. His book, The Cost of Discipleship, is actually a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount as he wrestled with these verses. And so this is what he had to say about the passage that we're looking at this morning. He said this, To confess and testify to the truth as it is in Jesus, and at the same time to love the enemies of that truth, his enemies and ours, and to love them, with the infinite love of Jesus Christ is indeed a narrow way. To believe the promise of Jesus that his followers shall possess the earth and at the same time to face our enemies unarmed and defenseless, preferring to incur injustice rather than to do wrong ourselves is indeed a narrow way. To see the weakness and wrong in others and at the same time Refrain from judging them and leave it in the hands of God. This way is unutterably hard. And at every moment, we are in danger of straying from it. We can say, yeah, I think that sounds about like a realistic response to these things, right? You see, to follow Jesus is to do and to live like him. We must embrace that there is, there is an expectancy of this. We know it's hard work, and we know we'll be imperfect in doing it, but we can't diminish the expectancy to give it all of our hearts, 
passion and desires and prayer to do. Jesus cannot be clearer here. The, the life of true discipleship is one in which we are following him. When we claim to be his disciple, yet do not follow him, even when it's hard, we are entering those wide and easy paths. And we will find that just maybe, if you continue in hard-heartedness in those areas until your dying day, maybe we may find ourselves that we were not fully following the Jesus that we thought we were. And I think that's the warning, the hard warning that we have to face this morning. I want to read another lengthy passage from Jesus. Actually, I won't read it. I'm going to summarize it because it's a little too long, maybe. Um, where he gets specific, spe- specific concerning this conversation of discipleship and what we should expect. Our Christian life, we've said this numerous times. Jesus himself said it. It can be summed up in this way. Love God and love your neighbor. It is a both and. The moment it becomes an either or means you were missing something. If you're loving God but it never believes into your neighbor, you are missing something. If you're serving in the soup kitchens and helping the poor but you never speak the the name of Jesus to anyone around you, you are missing something. This is a both and to love our neighbor, share the gospel, serve those who need it while loving God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You can't divide those two. Um, uh, Matthew 25, Jesus speaks very strongly here. And I want his words to, to resonate. And this is kind of my, my, my summary here. He says, um, uh, in the end, he's going to gather all nations to himself for judgment. He will say, he will divide the sheep and the goats, he says. If when you hear a quirky song, but one that proves the point, Keith Green wrote a song about the sheep and the goats. And it's quirky, but it, it, it brings this point along. One of my heroes, Keith Green, taken all too soon from this world. He said, Jesus said this, come. Come, those who fed me when I was hungry, those who clothed me when I was naked and gave me drink when I was thirsty and visited me when I was in prison. Enter into the life of God's kingdom. And the followers said, Jesus, when did I visit you in prison? When did I give you food when you were hungry? Right? They're like, I don't, I don't know if I remember this specifically, Jesus. And he says, ah, when you did it to the least among you, your neighbor, you did it unto me. For basically what he's saying is you were really serving me when you were serving your neighbor. I know your heart. You're my sheep. Come into my pastures. That's what he says. However, those who did not visit me when I was in prison, who did not give me food to drink, will drink the waters of judgment, prepare for the devil and his angels. And these are serious words for the Lord. Now, we can read that and say, well, that sounds an awful lot like works. Like, so I just do this, and then I'm saved, and I don't do that, and so now I'm judged. Like, take the entirety of Jesus' teachings and even the broader context of Matthew 25, and you'll see what he's saying is, if you have, and we'll talk about this more in a minute, when we squirm, we get uncomfortable at hearing those passages, I honestly can, um, I want to be accurate, I don't really can't recall, spent my entire life in a pew in a church, I've never heard a sermon on the sheep and the goats. Because he wants to preach that, right? Like, that's hard stuff. Like, what, what are you saying, Jesus? It makes us squirm, right? Because even right now, you know, uh, uh, the church for, uh, in America for the past hundred, whatever, for a while now, we've, we love to create our Christian bubble, right? To live in that, right? When just miles away in our own city, there's untold suffering, Children who don't get food 
uh, uh, three meals a day, just miles from our own churches and, and even houses. It's happening right here. I was talking to a pastor uh, locally who was approached by his denomination for wanting to, uh, 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 their church to give money to this missionary in India who was helping in an orphanage and helping children get food and have Bible studies with them. And, and he's like, that's great. I want to do that, sure. But you don't give me money when I'm doing the same thing in the city that you live in. Shouldn't we value your neighbors just as much as those in India? Why don't you give me money? And he got a little mad, right? And it's kind of funny the way he did that, but there's truth to that. These things are available here and now. And our faith should drive us for a both end. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor. You cannot separate those two things. And even in, our, in the more suburban areas when things look clearer and maybe a little better on the outside, we know that there is brokenness settled in those neighborhoods just as much as in anywhere else. We're surrounded by this. The harvest is plentiful, says Jesus, but the laborers are few. This wide gate also can even look like a spiritual gate. It can have the appearance of being the right way. But it can even then still, with the appearance of the right way, be the false way. And Jesus guides us to this thinking in verse 15 concerning false prophets. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Our grapes gather from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. My wife and I, we, we tried to plant apple trees at our last house. Um, we would get apples for like two weeks, and they would fall off. Um, and our kids would also pick them off before they were you know, this big. But we had a third one that um, we planted, tried to do three, right, to kind of do the whole interpollination thing, cross-pollination. But that third one just kind of, st- it was, these are dwarf trees anyway, but that third one just kind of stood there. It never grew like the other ones did. It would leaf and maybe get a little flowery, but then like the leaves would fall off in like April. And I'm like, I don't think that's supposed to happen, right? And on the bottom of the trunk, I, I, I remember seeing a little black streak. And I was like, that also doesn't look normal. And that black streak, and I, I, I'm so ignorant of stuff. I didn't know what to do. I just kind of let it be. You would see that black streak year after year just kind of go up, up, up. And by year three, the thing was just, it was done. It was dead. And sure enough, I look it up, and some disease that apple trees get, they had it from day one, and, and the tree never bore anything, while the other ones almost bore fruit. <laughs> um, I think I planted, I don't know what I did wrong. But anyway, there is still a stark difference between those trees, and that's the image Jesus is putting before us here. And he's saying, you know, it's interesting, these prophets that he's referring to, he doesn't actually talk about the things they say as if they're true or not. He goes to their life, and he says, a false prophet, even more, you know, that's one conversation perhaps, yeah, about the things they say if it comes to, you know, what's even more important is their life. Are they mirroring me? Are they bearing fruit, like actual kingdom fruit in my name when they speak 
in my name? Is their lives, uh, uh, the compass of their hearts truly directed towards me? Because if it's not, one day, just like a diseased tree inevitably shows, it will show in their life as well. I want to take this opportunity to, to talk about different ways that this can happen. And when I talk about this ministry of, you know, prophets, I could, we could preach a whole sermon there, but in some ways, all of us partake in this. Some people are more, by the, by the gifting of the Spirit, more inclined to this area, more gifted in this area to receive insight into things, into peoples, into events, and, and that's something that is a blessing from the Spirit. But when, all, when, when you simply pull your brother or sister aside, and you bring a gentle word of encouragement or correction, the name of Jesus to them, you are in a way invoking that prophetic office, right? And so in some way, we all kind of dabble in this ministry, but some even more so in a more public manner. But we need to talk about this for a minute, right? We need to talk about this. Um, uh, Because today, uh, I want to talk about charisma here for a minute. Uh, of those who, who enter into this office of, of preaching and teaching in prophetic in our media day and age, um, and they gain massive followings, sometimes global followings. The power of these big personalities, I, I, don't even, I won't name names, but if you are a Christian and you've been in the church for any length of time, you have seen some major leader whom you respect so much and who has done a lot of good ministry and Bible teaching and just did wonderful things, crash and burn morally. So even so hard to the point you're wondering, did this person, did they even get it? Like, how could they be so hard-hearted towards such extravagant sin? At least that's the question that I think Jesus is going to be posing here this morning, right? True leaders must always aim to point people to Jesus and to not themselves. The power of these false prophets and ravenous wolves is that they're so intriguing, their personalities can be so contagious, and that that ministry can become about them, even if they're not aware that they're even doing it. And we follow them and transfer their personality. This is mostly a man problem. So men, I'm talking to you, it's mostly a man problem. Some women, some, yes, it happens. This happens more often to men and male leadership. True leaders must always point us to Jesus. The ministries or churches they lead must be pointing others towards that narrow gate that we can lean on without worry of failure, which is Jesus himself. We need to understand that healthy leadership will be able to say, yeah, we're not imperfect, but you know, Jesus is, and he is the center of our church, and he's the one we're going to be pointing you at continually. But when leadership becomes intouchable, somehow outside of the realms of accountability, and there is a fear of even calling them out over their sin, or do you think, well, no, I know this person, I know that leader, they could never do something like that, because look at that, we know who they are. That kind of thinking actually enables these people to become an island and to bring even moral train wreck to their life. Beware of these kind of people. You have to be very thoughtful and um, uh, discerning when you're listening to them. True prophets will point you to Jesus and not themselves. I want you to show me Jeremiah in the Old Testament when he started his Jeremiah ministries and started writing books and putting coffee mug slogans about his ministry and selling them to Israel. Like You won't find it. 
What you hear Jeremiah saying is, God is after you. Repent. God, God is after you. He, his ministry was centered on God. We, just, we must need incredible discernment in this day and age. But before we move on, it's easy to point at these kind of people and, and the more obvious public examples we've seen of this. But take your eyes off others. Let's do the hard work and turn them inward. It's far easier to uh, want to talk about other people and their sin in this area and how others can be hypocritical, walking around looking like a sheep when inside they're a wolf and are rotting to the core internally. And the question remains, are you the false prophet this morning who mouths praises to Jesus but inside are just rotting away to the core with a hard heart clinging to your sin that refuses to let go but you've gotten the practice of speaking in the name of Jesus in front of others so well that nobody even knows it. Is that you? Is that me this morning? This is what Jesus is, is, is bringing before us. If that is you, there's a warning here. That path is destruction. And on your dying day, it may not go well for you. That is the warning that is being brought before us. What if I preach these things? I meet with you and I act one way, then I go home and I'm a terrible father, a terrible husband, and I'm just awful to the other ministry leaders here, but everybody's scared to talk about it. Something's wrong. When you think that's hard enough and you're saying like, Jesus is rough. Great, there's even something more difficult we had to talk about. Matthew 7, 21. I gave you a warning, guys. This is, not, this is hard stuff. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast demons out in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We have to really, like, really pay attention to this because this is, I don't care what teachers out there, this is still a bit of a head-scratcher. Okay, even the, the finest of theologians who know all the ins and outs of every, this is a little bit of it. This is really hard stuff, right? He, he, he names four things that these people are doing that I've called you guys to do, that I hope you do. Confess Jesus as Lord, yeah. Prophesy in his name, good, yes. Cast out demons in his name. Do mighty works in his name. It's great. I hope those things can be said of you. He says not everyone who says or does those things, meaning, of course, people who do those things are good, right? Their motive is great. So this doesn't apply to, obviously, everyone. But some who do these things will not be a part of the kingdom of heaven. And you say, well, how is that possible? How can you do ministry that would take the Spirit's work and somehow not be in the kingdom? Now, how does this work? There's a tension here, right? Can't be easily explained. Hebrews 6 says it in a slightly different way. 
4 through 8. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Whew, that surely sounds like a Christian to me if I ever heard one. And then have fallen away? He says, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Having been enlightened, tasted of the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, and even shared, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and they still fall away, no repentance is left. I want to clarify, I feel like I need to here, I'm not saying that you can lose your salvation. I don't believe that. I can point you to dozens of other scriptures that seems to say that those who have true faith will not lose their true faith. The warning that's consistent in this passage is those who think they have true faith actually don't have true faith at the end. That seems to be the warning. Jesus said elsewhere too that, and I think this is a good summary version of his, what he's saying here, that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is unforgivable. You say, how can there be an unforgivable sin? Well, the idea is this. If you've seen the Spirit work and you've, you've, you've seen it all, you've heard it all, you've seen people get healed in front of you, you've, you've studied the Bible inside and out and all those things happen before you and in your heart you're still just like, nah. He's saying, there's nothing left for you. What other kind of revelation do you want to see? You want to see me raised from the dead? He said, okay, I'll do that. And people still said, no, what can we do to like make up a story so he didn't raise from the dead? Like we can say something like, people did that. He's saying, if you, if you don't believe after seeing these things, there, there's nothing left for you to see. And here's the biblical truth at hand that I want to hit on as we move on here. True faith cannot be found without works. But works is not the final evidence of faith. You guys tracking with that? True faith cannot be found without works, but works is not the final evidence of faith. Because works without faith is dead as well. Our Christian life is launched on faith. Childlike faith. That's all it takes. You can be in your pew and say, Jesus, I, I, I repent of my sins and I need you. And you, and, and you receive salvation and you're like, and croak over dead. And you can be in heaven, right? That can happen. Happen to the thief on the cross. Faith is enough. It's all you need. But if you don't kill over dead at the moment that you confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have a life of work ahead of you. See how this works. This is why ultimately... As much as me and this church, right, we are completely open to the work of the Spirit. I want to continue to guide this church into expectancy of the Spirit's work in here. That everything Jesus did in his ministry, we get to share in by the power of the Spirit. That we see Jesus do the works he did, we can expect. We should anticipate him to be able to do such work even now through us and within us. Yet if your life is a train wreck and your heart does not fully belong to him if we have the poor living blocks from our church and we don't care but we're just loving spirit-filled ministry happening here this is kind of what he's referring to is it not jesus's words could then be said i think to us and to really any church around us saying things like i'm confused we, we saw like Demons cast out of people, Jesus. We saw miracles. We saw crazy stuff going on. 
And you're telling me, and I, I was even part of that. Like, I, 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 it happened through me, and you're telling me that I may not even know you? And Jesus is like, yeah, it's a possibility. These are hard words. Works without faith is dead. Faith without works is dead. Now, the Corinthian church was evidence of this. The gifts were manifest in amazing ways through the Spirit in the church at Corinth, but they were a complete train wreck. Paul gives directions for their spiritual ministry, encourage it to continue in 1 Corinthians uh, 12 and, and before. But then he kind of stops and he says, but, but, well, I'll just tell you something. There still is a greater way. Before, you know, these things, there's a foundational piece that you really need. That without it, none of that stuff actually matters. This is Paul's words. The famous love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, If you speak in the tongues of angels, but have not love, you sound like somebody, um, not Dan, of course, he sounds good, but somebody like me sitting behind a drum kit, just like smashing a cymbal and calling it beautiful music. Right? It's like, that's what that sounds like. If you speak in tongues, but have not love, there's nothing, there's nothing coming out of that, right? Except chaotic noise. If I speak with all prophetic powers, I have powerful faith that can even move mountains, but I have not love. In reality, I have nothing, is what Paul says. And even if I deliver myself to be burned for Jesus, to be a martyr and to die for his cause, but do it without love, ultimately I have done nothing. He immediately then says, Famously, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. All of this can be summed up like this. A loving church, loving one God, Loving God and one another, like Jesus, is the preference of a foundational block before anything else needs to take place. It's a preference to a church that is, that is manifesting the Spirit in amazing ways but have no love for one another. Paul's saying, no, you need the first block before anything else. Of course, the preference is both are flourishing. That's the ultimate vision of flourishing for the church is a spirit-filled church that is full of love for God and one another. That is the flourishing church. But we are guided here to first take on a new heart of love. And if we do not, we may be found to be those people saying, Lord, I thought that we were doing good stuff here. And he looks at us and says, depart from me. Now, warning passages, I'm going to close up here. These exist to warn, to provide the opportunity to turn. That's the idea. If you need to, even now, so you will not have to face the judgment spoken of in this passage. Warning passages are like Jesus knocking on the door in Revelation chapter 4, trying to bring himself in the door to these, this, this church. And, and I think it was, uh, was it Ephesus? Uh, probably not. Revelation 4, warning you what happens if you do not crack open that door. Let these words of warning, uh, is, is closing, penetrate you. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine, it doesn't just hear them, but does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds beat and blew on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. 
And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. When Jesus finished these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. As we close this sermon, that is a parable of sorts. Jesus tells us in John chapter 10, 9, that he is the door, that if we enter into him, we will find plenty of broad and green pasture and we'll find rest. He tells us he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. At the very end of this sermon, he tells us with the most bold authority of one who could only be God could say, listen to my words and do them. And the house that you are building in me will be built on a rock with its poles buried deep into the rock. So when that hurricane hits in life, when things get very difficult and very hard, you will find yourself with faith that will weather that storm because you are built on me. And Satan himself will toss everything at you and you will be shaken out but not destroyed. And your faith will be proven in its gold as it comes out of that furnace. And even when you stumble, you know the grace of God. He will fill you without shame to confess your sin, to rise again and to embrace Jesus with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength with the grace that he offers. The fruit of the false prophets, the fruit of the wide gate will be evident when the same pressure hits them and life gets hard. They will have been found to have built their house on sand when those waves hit. They will be swept away, proving that they thought themselves to be their own rock in which to build on and did not realize that they were building only on sand. Such faith cannot survive the hardships of life without the help of the one who gives us hope and life, Jesus Christ. We're going to close. This is a hard sermon. This is not something I preach on weekly, nor the Bible doesn't talk this way weekly, you know, all the verses, but we have to say these things out loud when the text is in front of us. But like an Old Testament prophet, of, you know, we find Isaiah and Jeremiah, they often spoke really difficult words, followed up with a vision of God's people responding, right? To actually, and here's what it looks like, Israel in the Old Testament. If you did respond, here's what's ahead of you. Here's the blessings that's ahead of you. And I want to do that this morning, not to soften Jesus' words at all, but to show you what's available for us if we are to respond to this, if we are to take these warnings and flourish as God's people, as this sermon is ultimately about, it's about flourishing in Christ. Isaiah, after speaking many warnings to Israel of old, he saw a renewed world in which a son of Jesse, the Messiah, would stand as a signal for the world to find life in, a beacon of life. Well, there will be no more war, Disease or death in the world. This is a new heavens and a new earth. It's coming. The new exodus that will take place in God's people as they return to him, freed from the chains of sin and death. And Isaiah then says in chapter 12, one of my all-time favorite passages in all of Scripture in beautiful and poetic language that refers to that day, he says this, You will say in that day, that day of deliverance, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, 
For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all of the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Today, we can find glimpses of this in Jesus, who has carried your sin and sorrows on himself. And as he was raised to newness of life, he offers us the water of life from his deep wells of salvation. Emmanuel, as we close in this final song, I invite you to come and to drink of those wells this morning. Let us pray. Jesus, help us to be willing to hear hard words when those weeks come. Thank you, Lord, that you extended warnings and Generation after generation, uh, in mercy, you have not returned, that you would continue to keep open the door of salvation, even for your own people, to respond to you, to find you anew. Even for those of us in this room who have been walking with you for longer than I have been alive, to even find newness and revigoration in you even now. And for those who maybe have been walking years with a hard heart, clinging to sin that they just have refused to confess, this morning, Spirit, would you break them down? Would you draw them to yourself and do a life-altering work, even now, of deliverance from their sin? Jesus, we have no hope apart from you. And as we close this sermon, Lord, as we look forward to Palm Sunday and Easter and Good Friday, to be reminded of all these stories that year in and year out we remember. Lord, do a special work in this church of Emmanuel, a special work in me, a special work in all the families represented today. That you would do, you would be strengthening marriages, Lord. You would be reconciling people back to one another. That your spirit would be just bringing us to a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. So we would with all joy learn how to enjoy you for who you are in all your goodness. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.